We've looked at some of the characteristics or attributes of God that help us understand the real God. I mean, we don't want to just talk about God. We want to know the real God. And so we've been looking at things like His goodness. What does it mean? Can we really trust His goodness? What does the word sovereign mean? And what does it look like? What is it all, what's it all about when we say that He is holy, that He is just It's a word that some struggle with. We looked at that. We've talked about his wisdom. Last week we talked about his amazing love. And you see, each of these attributes are so essential for us to understand because everything we do in life, pretty much, uh, flows downstream from what we think about when we think about God. How he affects, uh, what we think of him affects everything that we do. So today we want to wrap up the series and talk about faithfulness. What it means that God is a faithful God. You know, we all need or have an innate need to depend on or lean on someone or something. Kind of the thing that, that makes us want to get up in the morning. The thing that we want to hang our hat on. The thing that we, or the person that we care about or believe in the most. That we just, that we just care about more than anything else. That we know to be faithful and consistent in our lives. We all have a natural tendency to want to lean on such a thing or a person. For some people, that thing or person might be family. Maybe your spouse, your children. I mean, that's what you're all about. You just, you know, you you get up in the morning because you believe in that relationship or those relationships. For others, it's a career or a job. You find meaning and purpose in what you do. Or similarly, some are all about what you collect or what you gather as a result of your job. You know, how big is your 401k or your bank account or how many toys do you have in the garage, etc. For others, it's, it's a hobby or a sport, a athlete. People ask you, you know, what matters in your life? I'm a hunter or I'm a athlete or I'm a, I don't know, a dancer or whatever it is that you do that you go, that's what defines me. That's what, that's what I dwell on. It's who I what I focus on. Well, whatever it is, this something or someone in life feels through, when it's going well, when things are kind of clicking, rolling along well, then life feels good. You're, You're full of confidence and happiness and optimism and good stuff. But if that thing or that person seems to be unsteady, or if it looks like it's about to fail or is in the process of failing, then all of a sudden there's an absence of peace. There's fear, there's anxiety, there can sometimes even be despair. Well, I want to make one thing crystal clear today as we talk about faithfulness, and that is this, that there is no one and there is no thing, nothing and no one on this earth will be faithful to you 100% of the time. No one and no thing is, is to be depended on 100% of the time. No one or no, nothing except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what we need to remember. You know, when I was 22 years old and um, just a young guy, just graduated from Bible college, I was dealing with the death of my mom who had passed away from cancer, and I, uh, I was reeling. I really struggled. I moved on to a little town in Oklahoma to be the youth pastor of a tiny church in a town roughly the size, well, a little bit bigger than our whole church. The whole town was that. And... Um, 
And it was a wonderful place, wonderful group of people, but it was difficult in the sense that I was lonely. I was scared. I was, um, I was dirt poor, for one thing. I was single. Um, I didn't know much about life. I didn't know really much about ministry except what I'd learned in college and nothing practical. And, uh, and so I was very, very lonely. And my dad started dating quickly after mom had passed away, which is fine. It was a cool story in and of itself, but um, all that's wonderful. But he was therefore not really available. Um, mom was gone. And my brother and sister, who I was close to, were still back in college studying and spending time with friends that were surrounding them and both dating as well. So they weren't really available. All my friends were either still in school or had moved on and got jobs elsewhere. 20s. I mean, town where, I'm not kidding, where there literally was nobody really in their 20s. I mean, I worked with the teenagers, and the only other people in the town were the parents of them or older people. And, and so I really truly felt about as isolated or alone as I could. In fact, I had never been anywhere close to that in my life before. And um, sometimes I would come home after a day in the church office and just stare at the wall and literally just kind of cry out to the Lord in despair and, and doubt and fear and questions and insecurities. It was a difficult time. I want to tell you a story, though, about uh, David. Before he became King David, David was, uh, he's a grown-up. He's not the David and Goliath David anymore, but, but he's not yet king because there is him. But then Saul. And Saul actually saw a lot of good things in David, liked him, but then became insanely jealous because of a lot of different things that David did or God did through David. And so he sought to kill David. He wanted him dead. And so David went on the run um, because he trusted in and wanted to honor the Lord and did not feel it would be appropriate to take the life of the king. He actually had two opportunities to kill Saul. Could have done that and been done with it and been king and got rid of this guy that wanted to kill him, but David chose not to do that, and he stayed on the run, mostly from one cave or one hiding spot to another. And uh, so we pick up this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1, where the Bible says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Nageb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters all taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. And David was greatly distressed, not only because of that, but because, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for their sons and daughters. Terribly difficult situation. But David, look at this, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It does not mean, or it should not be confused with, David pulled himself up by his bootstraps. Or David dug deep within and found his inner strength. That's not what we're talking about. Not at all. You see, sometimes looking up happens best. We should be rock bottom. 
sometimes, I mean, we should be quick to turn to the Lord all the time. He should be our first option, and yet a lot of times He's our last result or our last option in our mind for some reason. And yet, either way, you know what? God says, never will I leave you. Never will I be available. You're looking up for me or not. I am there for you. I am watching. I am available. All you have to do is look up and you'll see me there. Kind of like Stephen saw the first Christian martyr right before he was stoned to death. Do you remember that story in Acts chapter 7? Stephen uh, um, was preaching and standing stone him, which literally means, and he was hated for it. And so a bunch of people came together and decided to stone him, which literally means pick up rocks, throw them at him until he collapses under the weight of all that, and then passes out or whatever, becomes unconscious, and keep throwing rocks until he is dead. And that happened to Stephen. He was the first of Christian, many Christian martyrs. But um, before that happened, just before that happened, verse 55 of that chapter says, but Stephen looked up actually full of the Holy Spirit. He looked up, and what did he see? Look at that. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Every time we look up, no matter the situation, if we will look up in that sense, we will always find God. Never will He leave us. Never will He forsake us. His faithfulness endures for all generations. A simple song I once heard someone else sing sitting around a campfire became an anthem for me and something I sang to myself over and over and over again back in that season of life when things were so hard, when I was really struggling. It wasn't actually a man-made song. It was just God's holy word put to music, and it became an anchor in the middle of that storm that I faced. I don't know. You've probably not heard it. I've never heard it sung in church. I just heard it at some campfire. But it became my anthem, and I literally sang it to myself sometimes I don't even like to even admit this, but at times to fall asleep, I would do so crying myself to sleep, singing this song. It comes from Lamentations chapter 3. The Bible says this. I love this. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Okay, setting the stage. Here it is. This thing I'm about to tell you is what I call to mind, and it's because of this that I have hope. Here's what it is. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore, because of this, therefore I will have hope, or I will hope in Him. And this simple little song that I sang to myself to strengthen myself in the Lord as David did was what helped me get through that difficult time. While I, was, I mean, it was wonderful in many respects, but the loneliness was at times overpowering with the loss of my mom and then all these other things going on in my life. And so I would sing it over and over to myself. And it's just that scripture, and it goes like this. The steadfast mercies never, the Lord never ceased. They are new every morning. New every morning, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, great is thy faithfulness. And I would sing that and sing that and sing. Oh, you don't need one. It became my anthem for years. I would sing that over and over and over. I'm telling you, it became my anthem for years. And um, something that God used to help me get through a difficult time. And then 
as we all know, life goes on from there to uh, bring more difficulty. All of us deal with stuff. And it is the faithfulness of our awesome God, along with all these other, other attributes that we've been talking about, that all work together seamlessly at the same time to help us through whatever we face. Let's define faithfulness to make sure we're all on the same page. The dictionary says, interestingly, similar to what I just sang for you out of Lamentations, it says, it says steadfast in affection. That is the definition, steadfastness in affection. That is our God. He not only loves us beyond description as we talked about last week, He never, ever fails us. Is anybody thankful for that truth? Never does He leave us or forsake us or fail us. Faithfulness also coincides with some other cool words that kind of bring it into focus. Things like allegiance, loyalty, dependability, trustworthiness, consistency, reliability, being true to one's word, keeping one's promises. And isn't it awesome that while we're none of those things, at least not all the time, I mean, we might be hit and miss, but we're none of those things all the time, our God is all those things all the time. Isn't that awesome? Now maybe some would ask, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I mean, that sounds like a nice thing to say in a sermon on a Sunday morning or maybe in a Sunday school class with all the children, but, but come on, be real, Scott. Is God really faithful all the time? I mean, does he not sometimes kind of drop the ball here or there? Doesn't he at least sometimes fail to come through in the timeliness that he should? Well, the easy answer to that is no, he never does. The issue with that perspective is that we are trusting our version of timeliness as opposed to His. God's timing is perfect, always. Now, it doesn't look that way to our, to our eyes to our, from our perspective, but it is always perfect. And we just have to learn to trust His faithfulness alongside of His goodness, His sovereignty, His omnipotence, His wisdom, His holiness, uh, His immutability, all these things that we have talked about, which he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is never in a bad mood. Never does he have a bad day. Back to A.W. Tozer, he writes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, all of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. That is really kind of a love that. If you kind of let that one roll around in your head, it kind of almost makes your head hurt. You're like, wow, wait a minute. That is really kind of a mind-boggling truth Hard to gather or to, to really grasp, but that is what our God is. All of his acts are consistent with all of his attributes. They all go together. He is faithful all the time, and we simply have to learn to trust him more than we trust our own heart, our own gut, our own thoughts. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The God who simply spoke, just simply spoke, and galaxies appeared. I mean, billions of planets and other galaxies. He just spoke them into existence. That same God is the God who said, I love you so much, I want to be your friend. I want to come down, in fact, to this one little tiny planet out of all the sea of planets, and I want to come down and dwell with you. Emmanuel, God with us. He sent Jesus to do just that, and not just to be with us for a period of time, but to knowingly, from the start, come to this earth so that he could die for you and I, so that he could then rise from the grave and defeat the power of death. That is the same God. How many of you like science? 
Who likes science? A lot of people do. My son Garrett loves science. He thinks he might want to go to college and learn to be something in that world. But, um, well, if you know science, you know that the study of planets is often part of that. And you might know that our planet is orbiting the sun at some crazy speed. I think it's like 24 or 25,000 miles per hour constantly in motion around our sun. And yet, you know what? Year after year, in fact, thousands of years after thousands of years, that orbit continues to be the same within a fraction of just a few seconds. With, I mean, faithfully, without error, it happens over and over and over and over as it has for thousands of years. It's an amazing uh, truth that that, how that works. Another cool scientific thing, scientists I heard recently talking about how um, atomic submarines, which have to surface every 90 or so days because they've got those, you know, really powerful rockets inside and they need to know exactly where they're at. And antenna, and they lock onto the northwise. So guess what they do? When they surface, they put up an antenna and they lock onto the North Star because the North Star is faithfully accurate. Faithfully accurate. We call these kinds of things, there are so many examples of stuff like this. We call this Mother Nature doing her thing. And like, wow, isn't that awesome? so faithful, so dependable. You know, it's the second or first law of thermodynamics or something along that line. We talk in those ways, and yet God would have us pause and remember and say to us, don't forget, I am the author of faithfulness. I am the one who created. These things only happen because of the word of my mouth, because I snapped my fingers and allowed it to be. Psalms 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. It's an awesome chapter. Verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness, here's our word, your faithfulness endures to all generations, and you have established the earth, and it stands fast. Orbiting the sun, all of those details, all of that flows downstream from God's work, His will. So God proves His faithfulness through creation, through science, but also in several other ways. And as we spend the rest of our time together, I want to show you five. That's the first of five ways that God's faithfulness can be seen. First of all, it is in creation. But secondly, if you're taking notes in the bulletin, here you go. God's faithfulness is seen through relationships. Through relationships. Through his interactions with people. You and me included. You know, God made promises to Abraham and the patriarchs. Um, at one point he told Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Uh, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and, the, and the, the sands on the seashore and all of that. And, and we go, yeah, that's really cool. And, and yet you got to stop and pause. And remember, when God told Abraham that, Abraham was just a simple little nomadic guy going from one tent to another. Just, you know, he had nothing, very little at that point, And then became this this great group and this great nation of people. And 4,000 or so years later, we have the nation of Israel flowing downstream from that. It has endured. And I don't just mean it, the nation of Israel. I mean it as in God's faithfulness, his promise to Abraham, prevail against it. Jesus at one point said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we need to remember that at that moment, all he had at his disposal from a human perspective was 12 guys, mostly fishermen, very simple guys as his followers, his, his tool belt. They were working with him. And one of them, of course, was going to betray him to death. 
Jesus had never walked or been anywhere more than 40 or 50 miles from his hometown. And yet he says, I'm going to change the world. Uh, you know, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And yet here we are living in a world today with more than 2 billion Christ followers and history stream from all of the world hangs and, and falls downstream from what Jesus did in his time on this earth. Wow. Relationships with people, with you and I, with people long ago and people still today. If I had time, we could pass the microphone around and we could hear all kinds of other cool stories. We could be here all day. I know, I know a lot of your stories. I'm sure I, there are a lot of stories I don't know. But just if we wanted to, we could just sit here and tell each other stories about God's faithfulness, including through the difficult times, which is point number three. See, God's faithfulness is also seen during weakness, during our weaknesses. Jesus loved stories. He told them all the time. I love stories too. I hope you do too. But he told stories all the time. And, and that's all about how God's faithfulness can shape our lives. And we see that through story. Jesus did that in the lives of all kinds of people in Scripture, but is doing it still today in our lives as well. It's one of the reasons I love life groups so much. You're going to hear Craig uh, Walker come and talk a little bit about that in a moment. But life groups are just simple small groups of eight, ten, whatever, small number of people that gather in a, in a living room once a week and they tell stories to each other, listen to God's story and to each other's story and get to hear one another and watch God work through even things like weakness in our life. In fact, speak, speaking about weakness, the Apostle Paul had a moment of weakness, a story, a situation that came his way. You can read all about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But in short, he had what was called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. He doesn't tell us. Some people would say, I don't think it was a, a, a physical thing. I think it was maybe a demon or something like that. We don't know. I don't think that. I think it probably was a physical thing. After all, it's called a thorn in the flesh. Um, and there are lots of reasons to think it might have been this or that. Um, I tend to think it might have been an eyesight thing. Other people think it might have been malaria. It could have been... Uh, uh, migraines, it could have been epilepsy, there are a lot of different possibilities. But bottom line is this, three times Paul asked the Lord to take this thorn in the flesh away. And three times God said no. And he went on to say, power is made sufficient for you. In fact, he said, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then, listen to this. Listen to Paul's response. Paul said, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness. I choose to look at it as a positive thing in my life. I delight in it, he said, because, he goes on to say, because when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, Paul learned that God could sometimes work through his weakness in a way that he could not work through his strength. And that God would work through this difficult thing, whatever it was, thorn in the flesh, to bring a self uh, upon his faithful God as opposed to self-sufficiency or self-reliance uh, and things along, along that line. It was something that Paul recognized God could use for his good and help him to go, wow, Lord, you are faithful and I do need to lean on you and when I do, oh, wow, it's a beautiful thing. Fourthly, God's faithfulness is seen during temptation. Temptation. 
1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. We need to pause and understand that truth. In other words, there's no such thing as any temptation you have ever faced that is not common. That is not something other people have experienced too. We tend to feel isolated and think ours is different, but no, it's the same. It might have a little different flair or flavor, but it's basically the same that everybody else faces. But then look at how the scripture goes on. God is, what's the word? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, it may take self-discipline to look for that way of escape. It's seldom easy. It doesn't often come uh, just supernaturally. It's something that we have to allow God to work through and help us find. But God promises to be faithful and help us find this way of escape, no matter the temptation. So in a sense, the temptation can actually be something that leads us to have more of a deep relationship with our faithful God. This way of escape might be the truth of His Word that He gave us, that we need to memorize and meditate on, that we need to apply in our lives. When Jesus was tempted, what did He do? He quoted Scripture at Satan, who, by the way, also was quoting Scripture just out of context. And so Jesus quoted Scripture Himself to context in the appropriate way because it was something that He had availed Himself to, that He had taken advantage of. And so maybe God's way of escape for us is to stand on His Word, spend time in His Word so that we can stand on His Word. Maybe it's with uh, godly friends that He brings our way, the counsel of wonderful people, life group friends, for example, that can help you develop relationship, that can hold you accountable, that can encourage you and pray for you. Maybe the way of escape is simply common sense that God blesses you with. Sometimes that it's just something that you have. Sometimes it's maybe a supernatural prompting by the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's a reminder that you need to walk away from whatever situation. We all know the truth. When you're around fire, if you play with fire, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. And, and common sense tells us we need to not play with the fire. We need to run away from it or at least walk away from it. Sometimes run away from it as Joseph did in that story in the Old Testament. If you remember that when Potiphar's wife came on to him, tried to seduce him, tried to throw herself at him. Hey, nobody's around. Come lie with me, she said, and he said no. But rather than play with the fire or talk his way out of it or in some way flirt with that idea, he ran, he literally ran from the situation. That is a way out God provided for him. One quick sidebar or side point here I want to make. We all need to remember the difference between temptation and sin. There's a big difference. I meet people all the time who don't understand this and they live with shame and guilt over things that... They, they should not, that, that are just normal things. Again, Joseph was tempted at that moment with Potiphar's wife. You can bet on that, but he did not sin. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. There is a difference between being tempted and sinning. In fact, to illustrate it, let me do this. Let's imagine, okay, this is just hypothetical. This won't probably never happen, but let's just imagine that God tells you no more chocolate. Chocolate is a sin for you. For other people, okay, it might be all right, but for you, it's a sin. So let's just imagine that, and you're like, okay, Lord, I don't understand that, but I will follow your plan. I will run away from, I will avoid uh, all those things, and I'll stay far, far away from chocolate. So you're doing well, you're walking with the Lord, you're avoiding chocolate, you've eradicated it from your life, 
Uh, you don't even walk down that aisle at the store because you want to avoid being tempted. But one day you're at Costco and this nice older lady who's kind of camped in the middle of the main aisle, you can't even hardly get around her, smiles and says hi and you say hi to her and as you walk close, you know, just try to walk by her, she shoves in your face pretty much this decadent Swiss organic free chocolate and tries to get you to eat it. Now that is temptation, Okay. Now, it's not sin. It would only be sin if you actually took these, come back and get, or, or did what some people do, which is like take a bite and then walk around and come back and get a second piece, come back and get a third piece. Come on. I know some of you have done that, right? But that is when you cross the line. But being tempted, having that right in front of your face when it smells so good and it looks so awesome, that's, that's not sin. That's temptation. You didn't look for the chocolate. The chocolate came looking for you. But guess what? Even if you sin, even if you take a bite, even if you fall, God's faithfulness is there for you even in the middle of your sin. Did you know that? Even in the middle of your sin, He is faithful. How do I know that? Because His Word promises us that. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. If we confess our sins, say it with me, He is what? faithful. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I just use chocolate cake as an illustration because it's benign. You know, it's silliness. But for some in this room, your real struggle is something real, something different. Maybe for you, it's pornography. And it's eating your lunch. That's your chocolate cake. Maybe for somebody else in the room, it's prescription drugs. You're hiding behind it. You're lying to yourself about it, but you know the truth. You're in trouble. Maybe for you, it's, you know, maybe you're one of those third or fourth glass of wine people. You're a functioning alcoholic. Maybe friends, your spouse, somebody else has talked to you about it, but you're like, oh, it's no big deal. I could quit anytime I want. I don't, but I could. For others, it's shopping. You know, every time you feel a little blue, you're tempted to go out and just rack up more debt on that credit card. Others struggle with work. You lie to yourself, tell yourself, I'm doing it for my family. I have to work 75 or 80 hours a week, even though your spouse is sitting at home saying, oh, honey, you know what? I'm proud of you for wanting to work hard, but you're going to have to start wearing a name tag pretty soon because the kids don't even know who you are. Whatever it is, the question becomes, what is your chocolate cake? Again, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful and and just to the things we're talking about. He is also holy. He is good. He is wise. He is sovereign. He is more loving than you can imagine. And he is eager to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He wants to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, to remember it no more. Scripture makes this so clear, but it is up to us to look at that verse and remember the first word, if. If we confess our sins, if we come clean, if we acknowledge the truth, if 
we are really willing to own it and to say, Lord God, yes, I confess, I repent, I want to turn, and I want to trust in you with his faithfulness. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond to his faithfulness this morning. The band's going to come out in just a moment, and we're going to sing one more song about his faithfulness. And it's an opportunity to respond to his faithfulness, not just to go, wow, it's really cool, but to respond to it. How do we do that? Again, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess, if we repent, if we come clean and acknowledge the truth and trust in him. The song we're going to sing is about faithfulness, and it begins with an interesting line. The line is this. We'll all sing it in just a moment. It goes, walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. Like, what's that all about? I'll tell you what that's about. That's about the story of Joshua. If you know the story at all, you know that um, God had led his people with, with Moses in the lead out of, out of slavery, out of Egyptian bondage. And they have uh, traveled through the wilderness. They've come to the edge of the promised land that God has given to them and said he's going to give to them faithfully. But they got there, and before them is this, this city of Jericho. And not only is it fortified with great walls, there are giants living inside of it. And so they send in some spies to go look at this place, and, and 12 of them, and 10 of them come back going, no way, no way. Yeah, God did a lot of cool stuff back there, you know, parting the Red Sea and providing food for us and the whole 10 plagues and all those. That was all really cool, but mm, not this. City's way too big. Giants are way too big. The walls are too tall. We can't do it. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, said, yes, we can. But because of the 10, the, the majority saying otherwise, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 more years at God's leadership because he wanted to allow all those who doubted him to die. So they did. They died off. And here they are 40 years later. They're getting ready to go back in. But listen to God's plan. He tells Joshua, who's now leading the charge, he says, tell the people this. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to make camp outside the city of Jericho, and then you're going to come in with your horns and your leaders carrying the Ark of the Covenant behind you, and you're going to march around the city, blowing your horns. And then you're going to retreat and go back to your camp, hang out till the next day, and do that again. Six days they did that and laughed at and, and And I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but I would guess they were mocked and laughed at and, and, and thought, crazy. Maybe they were spit on, had things thrown at them. We don't know, but six days in a row, they marched around the city doing nothing except blowing their horns, carrying the Ark of the Covenant in honor of God's plan. And I don't know, but I would guess a lot of them are like, okay, we're doing what you said, God, but this is a little weird. I mean, wh wh what is this going to accomplish? Well, he told them on the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times. And you're going to blow your horns. And at the end, you're going to yell, ah, you know, whatever, make as much noise as you can. And my guess would be if they're doing that, again, maybe being yelled at, maybe being mocked, spit on, who knows, whatever. I would think there, there would be potential for some doubt there. Some potential for like, God, what is going on? I thought these walls would have fallen by now. If you're going to do your thing, be a good time to do it now. But these times, these people, this time, trusted in the Lord. And they did it his way, even though it didn't make a lot of sense to them. Couldn't have made sense. But they did it his way. And you know what happened the seventh time? The walls came down. 
I don't know if there was an earthquake or what, but the walls of Jericho came down and the people entered into the promised land. They took Jericho and they, they ex experienced and, and understood all of God's promises. It was a beautiful and amazing thing. And what I want to tell you, in fact, will you stand with me? I want to tell you that God's plan is to show you his faithfulness as well. Now, the natural thing for all of us is to go, yeah, but God, I want to see it before I trust in it. That defeats trust. Trust is about saying, God, I don't quite get it. I don't understand what you're saying, but I will trust you anyway. That's what God wants from us. I thought these walls would have fallen by now, but you've never failed me so far, and you never will. Let's let this be our prayer. And if you want to respond and trust the Lord, maybe come down and pray with somebody or kneel at the stairs, I want to encourage you to do that. But will you sing and worship our God? who is faithful. His faithfulness endures for all generations. Let's sing it together.